Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that gives us perspective, that nourishes our souls, that simplifies so many things about our existence. The times are difficult and confusing. We find ourselves inundated with opinions and ideas that are as varied as they can be. We hear predictions and even prophecies that we can't fully understand, some even that we would disagree with. There are conspiracy theories abounding, even outlandish accusations. And many of us are so numbed by the information assault over the past decades that we want simply to crawl into a hole and never come out again. But as we lift our eyes this morning by faith to our Savior and King, we see one who is glorious and mighty, perfect in every way. One who has, in fact, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms. We read the good news of our forgiveness in him, adoption through him, of his loving purpose to destine us to be pure and blameless, and we can hardly fathom the depth of this news, its goodness, its greatness, its transformational power, but we believe. And all of this that Christ is and all of this work that he is doing will amount to the ultimate praise of your glory, the praise of your mercy, of your grace, because you, as we just sang a few moments ago, alone, you are the God who saves. Would you actively save us today from every sin? Would you cleanse us from every stain of unrighteousness in our souls, whether it be of words that we have spoken, deeds that we have done, or even thoughts that we have never shared with another person, but those things that are in defiance of your law, that are indicators of our rebel hearts. Oh, Lord God, forgive us and rescue us. Save us, Jesus. We thank you for the powerful blood that you shed on Calvary's cross and thank you for the continual cleansing that it works in us. Thank you for your kindness to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and for those who struggle to believe this morning that there might be any more forgiveness in you, that there might be any more kindness or grace or mercy. Let them be assured that the blood of, of Christ that he shed on the cross is a fountain full, a fountain never running dry, a fountain overflowing with mercy for those who come. We ask that you would wash us with the water of the word as we continue to read it and study it as we hear it preached. We praise you that you are the God who has defeated every sin. And the work of grace that you are doing causes us to sing both in relief and joy, in awe and wonder. There is none like you in all the universe. Eagerly, Lord Jesus, we look for your return. Patiently we wait and work and watch and we know that the hour is fixed and while it is unknown to us, that great day that you have appointed approaches rapidly. Have mercy on our nation. Have mercy on this community. 
pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in conviction of our sin, of righteousness found only in Christ, and of judgment that will come. Our pride and arrogance has made us deaf to your word and callous to your touch in so many ways, but you are our hope, our shepherd, our savior, our friend. Draw near to us today and change us by your great presence and power. And if you will not rescue and deliver, then we have no hope. And so while some seek to topple governments or remove political figures, our prayer today is that you would topple the idols of our hearts and that you would overthrow our delusions of independence from you and autonomy in life. Shatter those dreams of opulent wealth and lives of ease and luxury that keep us from coming to you as the great treasure. And we pray that you would depose our rebel fantasies of self-rule and personal sovereignty. Oh God, hear our cries for rescue and salvation on this day. And as we open the word together this morning, Spirit of God, illuminate our minds that we may understand it and move our wills that we may believe it and obey it and cause us to know your presence and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. It is toward the back of your Bible. It is one of the New Testament books, and uh, we will go there in just a moment. How many of you would look at that photograph and say that could be a self-portrait, a selfie? That just about captures me on any given day of the week. Any of you honest enough to admit that? Yeah, it's me. Your alarm goes off and you say, really? I just fell asleep. Or a parent nudges you and says it's time to get up and you say, seriously, go away. You know, some of you are morning people and you, you can't even relate to this. I mean, like, Your eyes spring open with life and joy and you just can't quite understand the rest of the world that that really wants to be left alone for a little bit. I love morning and fancy myself to be a morning person, but I don't begin the day bounding out of bed with all energy and enthusiasm. No, I prefer quiet. I prefer a cup of coffee. If I have, have ample time to just have my Bible open and reading, uh, w- without any kind of pressure, uh, but I'm just telling you right now that when I was a kid especially, my parents thought it was funny to wake my sisters and me with a variety of loud expressions, and I was delighted to discover that in the Bible, God himself understands most of us feel like this, and those of you who don't relate to this, you need to take to heart what Proverbs 27:14 tells us, that whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. <laughs> That's not just my opinion. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> now, not that God justifies being a grouch, you know, and speaking ill or evil, to or of other people when you wake up, but many of us feel this way, don't we? How many of you, to be more specific, feel this way, particularly Sunday mornings? What is it about this day of the week that can sometimes be the hardest day of the week to get up and get going? How often do you get up on a Sunday and say, 
I don't feel like going anywhere today, let alone to church. One particular man woke early on a Sunday morning and told his wife, I don't want to go to church today. It's been a long week and I'm tired. It's always the same boring service. The seats are uncomfortable. And furthermore, nobody there likes me. Patiently, yet firmly, the wife said, you need to go. He said, give me one good reason. And with all love and candor, she replied, you're the pastor. Well, I've never had that exact conversation with Kristen, but I can relate to that and tell you honestly, there's some Sunday mornings where I think, I don't want to go to church. You see, it's not just a matter of physical fatigue that sets in, but there's spiritual resistance within us. We're all carrying around this thing that the Bible calls flesh. And your flesh is opposed to any work of the Spirit, so it makes sense that this day, this one day a week where we typically are planning and preparing to gather as a people of God, your flesh would give a little extra resistance. So there are some spiritual reasons for that. I will tell you, though, that the recent events in our nation and world have caused me to think a little differently about gathering for worship than I have in the past. Not being able to gather with you during March, April, and May made it a a little different view, if you will, made me a little hungrier for what God gives us here. Some of you have been absent for physical reasons. Even some of you who are uh, joining us via live stream today say, I long to be with the people of God. That absence has made your heart grow fonder. Not being certain about when the next shutdown might occur or some other national or global event that might prevent us from the ordinary Sunday routine causes me to, to value these gatherings even more, and I hope it does for you. In the month of January, we want to take four Sundays now, the four that are left, uh, to cover uh, significant ideas that as a pastoral team we have identified together, and we believe that these four particular themes not only describe who we are as a church, but would define in very simple terms the things we value most, the things that God sets before us, the things that Christ has called us to participate in. And so the, the four Sundays, beginning today through the end of January, just think of this one word each week as you come in. It's about together, together. But it's not something just we manufacture as people who say, you know, we really like each other. We've got friendships that are developing here and some are newer to gospel hope than others. And No, it's not about us or what we think because the life of a true believer is not simply tied to Jesus. It originates in him. It rests in him and even derives all life from him. As a matter of fact, because we are united to Jesus personally, eternally, and I love this word as one of my teachers shared so long ago, irrevocably. That means once Jesus ties the knot with you, nobody unties it. Irrevocably, we're also bound together personally, eternally, and irrevocably. Sometimes that takes a little work, I know, but it's because of the union with Christ and one another that we are doing these four things. We are gathering in worship, we are living in community, we're learning in studies and serving in teams. And almost all of those terms that you see in the four corners of that screen have to do with relationships. We, we really wrestle with that learn in studies. We're still not fully satisfied with that because it feels a little academic. 
And while there is learning that we need to devote ourselves to and discipline ourselves in, it still comes back to a relationship with Jesus and relationships with one another. Now, there are many passages we could look at today concerning gathering to worship, but the one that God has just placed on my heart and will not let me get away from is Hebrews 10, and specifically verses 24 and 25, but the whole paragraph really begins in verse 19. We could go to passages like Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that tell us the specifics of what true Christian worship looks like. Singing together in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in our heart to God. Colossians speaks even of the instructional value. Learning by the the texts that we sing one to another in a gathered uh, assembly like this. We could go to passages like 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul corrects the abuse uses and, and misuses of a corporate worship gathering in the first century church of, of Corinth and then focuses their attention on, on prophesying the gospel message with such order and power that outsiders would come in, Paul says, that the secrets of their heart would be disclosed, they would know the presence of God, be so overwhelmed that Paul says they would fall on their faces and worship God with you. That would be kind of the end or the goal of all corporate worship, and that would be a whole message, if not series in itself. I think we'll get to that on Thursday nights, by the way, a little appetizer there. We could go to Revelation 4 and 5 and look at the ultimate worship service that begins at the close of this age when God gathers his saints from all the ages together and and we assemble around his throne and in unbroken praise we sing and joy and rejoice and feast and work for all eternity in worship of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Any one of those passages would be a glorious text for us to understand what is really happening when we gather in worship. But there's one that I think fits our context so well of these difficult and confusing days and it comes in Hebrews 10. Now, before I read this text, one other little qualifier. Hebrews was written about the year 70 AD, so almost 40 years after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended on high. The church has been established. Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Silas and many others have have gone to uh, the known parts of the world and and been building churches, establishing those uh, little works, and the church has grown by leaps and bounds, but there is also, uh, in the Roman Empire, persecution that is beginning to make life really difficult, and to be a follower of Jesus at that time is costly. And so this letter is written, and the author is unknown. There's great debate. Was it Paul, was it some other figure? We don't know for sure, and that's part of what takes the focus off of who wrote it, and it puts the focus squarely on what is being written. And one of the themes that Hebrews develops for us is that we need to be people who, because Jesus is great and glorious and superior to all other prophets, all other forms of revelation, all other priests, all other sacrifices, we must persevere in our faith in him to the very end. And so perseverance and endurance, even in the face of the greatest difficulty, is one of those themes that emerges. Now in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews has been been leading us beautifully to this profound truth that because Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice, when you've known his forgiveness, 
There's nothing else you could offer for your sin. That's, that's verse 18. And then in verse 19, we'll begin reading here. And I want you to see some of the conclusions that the author of this book is, is bringing people like us to. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and I know that sounds mysterious, we'll just have to leave it for now, since we have a great priest over the house of God, and that's Jesus, make no mistake, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, What what are we fully assured of? Well, here it comes. That our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second command, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. There's a little quick word of encouragement for those of you who say, but I don't know that I can hold fast. I don't know that my faith is going to persevere. Hey, the greater issue is not the size of your faith, the strength of your faith, the quality or quantity of your faith. The greater issue is, can God keep his promises? And he always does. Third command, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three commands that I noted there as we move through there quickly. First of all, verse 22, draw near. Then in 23, hold fast. Then in 24, consider how. And you might quickly summarize these with with another little phrase of explanation. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to personal devotion, That's what draw near is about because Jesus is and has done all those things for us. Draw near to him. Secondly, there's a call to personal endurance. You and I do have to hold fast in faith. But this is what we're gonna focus on this morning, a personal commitment to consider. But I don't want you to just read this as if it's you and, and your Bible and God alone. Rather, this command is given in the context of a corporate commitment. That is, we together are called to commit ourselves to something really significant. So let's look at verses 24 and 25 very uh, carefully here for just a few minutes. Notice that the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another. Consider how to stir up one another, specifically to love and good works. Consider, that means, means give concentrated thought to this. Think about this and think hard. Think creatively. Think outside your comfort zone. Think outside the box, if you will. And then that phrase, stirring up, as one uh, Bible dictionary notes, is a striking term meaning incitement. And sometimes it's used in a positive sense as it is here or in Acts 15, 39 in a bad sense or negative sense where people are incited, and we've seen some of this lately, haven't we, incited to riot. Well, that's not at all what God has in mind for us. This author goes on to say, it seems to suggest that loving one another will not just happen. It needs to be worked out, even provoked or incited in the same way as good works. This combination of love and good works is remarkable in emphasizing that love must have a practical outcome. And the adjective for good used here marks out the works as good in appearance, as having an attractive quality about them. It suggests that the works must be self-evidently good, 
that no doubt can exist about their true value. And I thought, what a, what a, um, a, a distinction that would be from some of what we've seen lately. A variety of opinions as to what happened in our capital this last week, aren't there? Um, I, I'm just amazed, as you are, and I don't know that all the reading that I've done or even talking, I have a very close relationship friend who was actually there, not, not to enter the Capitol, but was not very far away and saw some of the things unfolding and saying, I, I, I can't be near, and so made his retreat. Even among my closest friends, there are very different opinions as to what those acts really amounted to. Some would say they were good and right and patriotic and necessary, and others would say, no, they were not. To tell you the truth, I don't know enough yet to to weigh in fully. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that we need to devote ourselves as the people of God, thinking carefully through the way we live, and then learning to, to devote ourselves to good works that there's just no question whatsoever, that's a good thing. That the way we love one another could not be misunderstood, even in the smallest way, but that people would say, you know, I'll say one thing about those people at Gospel Hope, they love each other, and, and if there is any incitement, as this term appears, it's to love and good works. What a powerful contrast that could be to what we see being incited through social media, through protests and gatherings. You see why I say I can't get away from this. It seems like such a timely word for us. The love that Hebrew speaks of here Another author writes, describing it this way, is a caring response to need in the lives of other Christians. And good works are tangible expressions of caring love. I was thinking back over this past year, so many evidences of that. From sacrificial gifts that you all have made one to another when a special need has arisen, has arisen to just words of, of Christian love. Words of affirmation, of appreciation, words of hope and comfort and healing that you've spoken over others, seasons of, of prayer, meals that you have shared together or just dropped off. There, there are countless demonstrations of this, but we, we cannot rest in our past record of those things, rather just need to continue building on those things, each doing his or her part. Before we go to the next phrase in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, I do want to ask a question. How will you know the needs in the lives of other Christians if you never assemble with them? How will you give active support and show personal concern for the welfare of others when you never spend time with them? I think that's part of the reason that Hebrews 10, 25 says not neglecting to meet together. God recognizes not just the value of meeting together, but the essential nature of coming together. The terminology that Hebrews is using here actually has reference to an official assembly. Let me, I'll come back to this little contrasting thought here in just a second, but, but I, I wanna kind of build out understanding the contrast between not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together and then encouraging one another. The term suggests an official assembly 
We're not talking about casual social gatherings, even among believers. There's a place for that. It's not wrong. I I don't want to act like there's no value in that. There's great value in that. But what the writer of Hebrews seems to be speaking of would be those official gatherings. So we're not talking about meeting your friends at Taqueria 27 for Taco Tuesday. No, we're talking about the times where the church says we're going to meet. Sundays would be one of them. In our case, Thursday nights will be another one. There are men's meetups that Matt will talk about. Ladies' Bible study begins this week. There really are quite a number of gatherings, and this is not to foist some kind of of man-made or artificial guilt on you saying, if you're not at every one of those assemblies, you're a bad person. No, it's just saying, is it actually a priority in your heart to say, I'm gonna make as many of those as is possible because I wanna be with the people of God. The term Hebrews uses here is something used in old, old literature. Uh, And some of the early church fathers, and they're not books of the Bible, but some of the early pastors and other theologians who were writing would, would frequently admonish the church to actually gather as frequently as possible. And do you know why they did that? They did it in part because times were hard. So what the author is really saying is, don't forsake your church gatherings. I know that in this season there are some who for, for genuine physical reasons can't gather, mindful that some are live streaming today, wishing they could be in this room with all of us who are gathered here today. But I also wonder about those who are just like, eh, I just don't feel like being there. One commentator writes, the writer regarded the desertion of the communal meetings as utterly serious. It threatened the corporate life of the congregation and almost certainly was a prelude to apostasy on the part of those who were separating themselves from the assembly. That's really strong, isn't it? But it's right. Because when Jesus saved you, he brought you into relationship, not just with him, that personal, eternal, irrevocable union. He brought you into relationship with other people and the Christian life is designed to be lived not independently, it's designed to be lived in community. And our adversary would love to keep us naive to the danger we place ourselves in when we neglect the gathering. There's another dimension of this too. It's not just of a spiritual vulnerability before the adversary, but we we need to recognize a cultural difficulty, if not an outright idol. Most of us have grown up with the cultural idol of personal autonomy. And we live with all kinds of delusions about our personal independence. And optional church attendance is one of those. Well, if I have nothing else to do on Sunday, I'll be there. If I don't, you know, have a better offer or I'll be there. I've heard many people say, you know, I can worship God in the great outdoors as easily, if not better, than I can in church. Actually, that's inaccurate. I love the outdoors like anybody. I'm just telling you, if I were sitting around a campfire on a mountaintop somewhere or, you know, sitting in the back of a boat, lying in the water, I mean, I can think of all kinds of outdoor options where it's almost a worship experience. And there often is great gratitude in my heart to say, God, you made all of this. Wow, look at this, look at that, smell this, smell that. I mean, just the sights and sounds that and fragrances that God has put in the world are truly overwhelming and it should cause your heart to rise to him in gratitude and thanksgiving but that's not the kind of worship ultimately he's designed to happen in the assembly of the saints 
There's something else that he has designed for our good and for our protection. Well, what might that be? Well, if we go back to the, the text, you can see the little phrase I want to compare it to, encouraging one another, um, is what protects us from the spiritual danger for those who don't regularly assemble because when you come, uh, he says encouragement is the thing. And that is a little phrase that, that if you were to break this down and do kind of a little word study, you'd find that its simplest meaning means to call to the side of. There was a dear uh, retired missionary in our church in South Carolina. She is now with the Lord. I may have mentioned her before. She was quite an amazing woman and the story of her life and the 30 years she and her husband spent in Haiti and we're talking decades ago before even some of the modern conveniences and technologies. I mean, that story is worth writing and, and making known far and wide. And she was a particular blessing to my wife uh, and just loved her and mentored her. And when I was first starting out as a preaching pastor there, her name was Mrs. Bell, and she sat usually the first row or second row um, and often just to the right of the pulpit and would give verbal feedback through services that was just wonderful. Most times it was just a sweet, mm, amen, you know, just quietly, but enough where I could hear. But occasionally, and on one, one instance in particular, I had preached from the Old Testament, and, um, and she was just expert in the Bible. And I finished and talked to a few people, and I'd stepped down from uh, the pulpit area, and she was sitting in the front row at that point. And she looked up at me and said, Danny? And she patted the seat beside her. And so I walked down and I sat down to Mrs. Bell and she said, I want to show you something. And she didn't outright say what you preached was in error and here's the truth, but that was the net effect of her words because she showed me some things that I had not seen and connected some dots in the Old Testament story of redemption that quite honestly were powerful. She called me alongside and as I sat there next to her, she actually was doing this work of encouraging. It was a very specific form of encouraging, but she called me to her side that I might be blessed ultimately by God's truth, that I might grow in my understanding of him, and that ultimately would result in my growing in worship of him. And see, this word, it could, could actually be used in a number of ways uh, it, it could include the, consoling someone who is discouraged or grieving or despairing. It could include the, the comfort that they might need through a very difficult time. To call to the side of is worked out in a number of ways, but I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Here we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. First of all, let's just pause and think about he's the God of all comfort. Any comfort or encouragement you would ever experience ultimately resides in him, begins in him, comes from him. So he comforts us, 2 Corinthians 1 says, in all our affliction, but look at the purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And part of his design in gathering as the people of God is that we might experience his comfort as it actually flows through one another. And that's what you can't get on the mountaintop by yourself. 
or in the back of your fishing boat, even with your good buddy, because it ain't gathered worship in this sense. Four quick things that I, I, I want to just share with you. When we come together in this way for the purpose of encouraging one another as God himself, as the God of all comfort, has encouraged us, um, this kind of gathered nourishes our hearts in the truth. It's truth that comes from God and it's truth about God. It nourishes our hearts. Secondly, this kind of gathered worship comforts our hearts in love, both God's love for us and our love one for another. You and I need to be reminded every day we're not alone. We need to be reminded every day that there are people who have similar struggles and cares and worries and anxieties just like us, but we're a part of people who are not trying to like, practice the ultimate self-help, self-rescue. We're people who come to God and find in Him everything that we are in need of. Number three, it reorients our minds to Christ's unchangeable truth and eternal sovereignty. That's part of the reason we pick the songs we do, and we, some of them we know well, others of them we're just learning, because we're actually just trying to expand uh, this, this um, hymnal, so to speak, that, that is inside of all of us. I have a friend who I was just spending some time with several years ago, and he was helping me to actually transitioned from South Carolina to Utah, some things of a you know, pastoral concern and some things of a personal concern. And I was sharing with him some of the struggles that I had at that particular season of life. And he said, Danny, you know what you need to do? You need to grab a journal and turn it into your arsenal of truth. And I'd never heard that little phrase before. I don't know that it's original with him, but I began to do that, and he said, find scripture passages that are meaningful that tell you this is who God is, this is what God does. You might write down songs or hymns that are of particular meaning to you, and um, I haven't filled that thing up, and to be honest, I've I've kind of moved away from the specific arsenal of truth, but I was thumbing through that just this past week and remembering some of those moments where in my need, I found God to be something that was exactly what I needed, his word to be exactly what my heart needed to hear or a line from a hymn or a song or even a psalm that just powerfully ministered this truth of Christ to my soul and gathered worship is intended to do that that's why we just don't sing happy songs and there are a bunch of them out there but we want songs about Jesus not just you know like folk songs or pop songs that are you know, just upbeat, and we all kind of go out going, man, that's a, that's a great concert. Now, this is more than a concert. It's gathered worship that takes us to Jesus, reorients our minds and hearts to him. Number four, it reminds us of his soon return, and that's where Hebrews is gonna go next. Look at this next line in verse 25. The Bible exhorts us, commands us, that we would not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and then adds this, and all the more, or so much the more, as you see the day approaching. And in many of your versions, day is capitalized, isn't it? Any of you say, what is the day? Well, there are two dimensions of this that are quite uh, sobering and one encouraging. I want to read two other passages for you. You can turn there very quickly. If you're in Hebrews, just go a little bit, uh, a little bit farther to the back of, of your Bible, and you will come to 2 Peter, 
and it's right after 1 Peter. It's interesting how that always seems to happen. In 2 Peter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, we read, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's the global warming I'm concerned about and so should you. I'm not worried about the oceans rising by means of some of the things that are, are being propagated these days. I'm concerned about living in such a way that my life as the age we are living in comes to a close and a new age is open for us that I would be the person that God is saying you ought to be and so should you there's a second passage we'll come back and make some conclusions here but in 1 Thessalonians 5 and I'm just going to read verse 2 and then verses 9, 10, and 11 so I'm skipping out skipping a little portion of this but here the apostle Paul says you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night hey that's what Peter just said Verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, picking up the theme of Hebrews, and build one another up just as you are doing. You see, for the people of God, the day of the Lord is not a day that we fear or dread because we know our souls are secure, destiny has been established, it will actually transition us from this age of human history into the eternal age, and there will be blessing waiting for us. But there are two clear parts of the day of the Lord that we need to be aware of and the first is as it is described here in second peter 3 the day of the lord is the climactic future judgment of the world characterized by global cataclysmic events nations and people will be judged for rebellion against god what what were the rumblings we're seeing around the world right now they're just little tremors compared to the massive earthquake that's coming but the day of the lord for those who follow Jesus would be described this way, it's the consummation of the age when the Lord will establish his eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace and believers will receive their final rewards and enter into eternal joy. You know, if you, if, if you know that your sins are forgiven, that you've been given the gift of eternal life, that you're not perfect but you are in a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, the, day of the, the thought of the day of the Lord is exhilarating. But if you're not in right relationship with the Lord Jesus, and his work on the cross has not been made personal to you, it's a day to be dreaded. And the writer of Hebrews recognizes that that day is coming and recognizes that some, even in that assembly he's writing to, have grown careless and stopped coming, and he's concerned that that might reveal, ultimately, they never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not that he's concerned they're gonna lose their salvation. He's just concerned that if they don't continue to submit themselves to God's truth, it'll never take up residence in their hearts, and they'll be lost forever. Sobering, isn't it? So church attendance, gathering for worship, is not about checking boxes. You know, getting a star on your chart. 
years ago in Sunday school, we did that kind of thing. We still have variations of that, even in present-day culture. But, but the writer of Hebrews is not concerned about you know, attendance records. He's concerned about eternal destiny. And the experience of the Hebrew believers that necessitated the assembled uh, worship uh, follows. Go back to Hebrews 10 now with me. And I, if you say, I, I don't know that I can find it that fast, great, look at the screen. I'm gonna highlight just a couple of things. I'm gonna read the whole portion, but I want you to listen for a couple of things. First of all, he says in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, and that's a different way of saying when you came to know Jesus Christ savingly, he says you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Well, that kind of undermines all that prosperity gospel that's out there that tells you if you come to Jesus, you'll never have disease again, or you shouldn't. You'll never have bills and financial difficulties again. You shouldn't. That's bogus. That's actually a false gospel. Here are people who came to Jesus, and it actually resulted in suffering in their particular culture. He goes on in verse 33 to say, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Mm. I'm telling you right now, my American spirit will struggle with that. I look at that sometimes and I think, would I accept the plundering of my property for the testimony of Christ? I hope I would. But then he says, verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The day of the Lord is coming. There's gonna come a moment where you can't, you can't attend one more worship service on planet Earth. You can't do one more act of service for the Lord here, not in this age. A new age will come. And, and he's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, very simply but very strongly, you have need of endurance. And one of the ways we find that endurance is to keep coming together. So those little conversations that were happening all around the room and in the lobby beforehand are really important, especially when they get down to real life stuff. That's, that's why you gotta be humble enough and transparent enough to talk to one another honestly, to dig a little bit. You know, we get through those pleasantries and politeness, and there's a place for it. It's not wrong for us when we're, you know, just passing somebody and, and, and somebody says, how are you today? And you say, I'm fine, how are you? I mean, that, that's like driving down the road and, you know, just a friendly little wave. Nobody's offended because you didn't pull the car over and get into, you know, like a three-hour conversation. No, really, how are you? But sometimes, as the people of God, we need to get into those conversations and go, really, are you okay? Somebody shares a little request, we, we try to follow up on that. It goes both ways, can I just tell you that too? Some of you are not inclined to dig into other people, but you need to develop that skill. Just press a little more. And yeah, there'll be some awkward moments where you'll ask a question or say something and suddenly it'll get really awkward. It's okay, we're growing. We love each other. Jesus has got all that covered. Say, I didn't really mean that and that came out wrong. Great, say it straight up. Just admit it and let's all press on. But, so we're gonna give grace uh, to one another in multiple ways. But, but this thing of needing endurance is dependent upon coming together. Many aspects of worship that we could have talked about. But as I look at this passage, I say, thank you, Lord. 
It's not on the screen, but as the writer of Hebrews continues into verse 37, he actually goes back and grabs a little piece of Isaiah uh, and a little piece of, of Habakkuk, I think it is, those Old Testament prophets, and he says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. My righteous ones, this is God speaking, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the author of Hebrews says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Isn't that hopeful? On any given Sunday, there are hundreds of reasons we can come up with to avoid gathering, but there are always eternally significant reasons that necessitate our gathering. Question one, do you value what the Lord values? For starters, he values your soul. He values your eternal destiny. Do you even value your soul and eternal destiny? Do you value the gathered worship? Number two, do you recognize the present danger to you if you withdraw from this? And a corollary, do you recognize the promised blessing? And then specifically to that last command, do you see the need both for you to be encouraged and second of all, to encourage others. There's opportunity and responsibility every time we come together. I'm so thankful that God doesn't call us to come into kind of a spectator sport. That's why we're not here because, you know, Andrew can really put on a show. Andrew is gifted. Our worship team amazes me week in and week out, but at the end of the day, you know, if Andrew were up here with, dare I say it, a Jew's harp, that's for my wife's sake. That's her little humorous go-to instrument there's a story behind that it wouldn't matter because it's not about a show it's about the living God gathering with people who are on their way to heaven encouraging loving serving one another persevering to the end because the day of the Lord comes would you bow your heads with me please father we are thankful for the word that is life It's not simply wisdom or principles for life. It is life. And we ask that as you continue to grow our understanding of it and change us by it, that we would be the people that you long for and desire. And I pray that together we would gather in worship in a way that pleases you and that encourages us. And as we explore three other aspects of life together in the church in the coming weeks, that it would result in your great glory, our blessing, and joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.